0: It's June 11th, 1973. Bunker Hunt is in a meeting in Dallas. It could have something to do with his various oil holdings around the world or the many lawsuits he pursues against rival companies. And judging by photographs of Bunker, he's probably wearing his usual business uniform. White shirt, patterned tie with a cheap suit jacket draped over his sizable paunch. On this day, Bunker's meeting is interrupted by a phone call. He puts the receiver up to his ear. On the other end of the line, a caller provides an update on Bunker's Libyan oil fields. According to estimates, the fields have already made him about $100 million in profits. But a few years ago, the king of Libya was deposed by a young upstart known as Colonel Muammar al-Gaddafi.
1: But Gaddafi's coup was bloodless. He has no taste for violence at home. He prefers to export the bloody libation of fanaticism.
0: Yeah, that Gaddafi. Ever since Gaddafi came to power, he's been asking all the oil companies with fields in Libya for a cut of the action. Most of the big companies, like British Petroleum, have been playing along. They give Gaddafi a share of their profits, and even make a big show of building hospitals and schools for the Libyan people. But when Gaddafi asks Bunker for a cut, Bunker doesn't give an inch. Letting some Marxist dictator have some of his hard-earned cash goes against everything his father had taught him. Bunker stands firm and keeps every dollar he earns from his Libyan holdings. But now, on the phone, Bunker learns that he's just paid the price for sticking to his guns.
1: Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, ruler of Libya, today announced nationalization of an American oil company. Gaddafi denounced the United States for its support of Israel and added, his words, it is high time the Americans took a strong slap on their arrogant face.
0: Bunker hangs up the phone. He's just lost an oil field worth 15 billion dollars. To the room, he says exactly one word. Fuck! Gaddafi's taken Bunker's golden goose, his crowning achievement, the thing that makes him most like his father, HL. It can't help but feed his paranoia, the sense that people are out to get him. Maybe Popsy was right. So Bunker plans his next move. He needs another score. Something sturdier than oil that's also easier to store in a bank vault. Herbert's doing real estate deals down in Texas, but he's found himself in a similar emotional position. He also needs a win because both brothers have fallen out of favor with their father. And they can tell because their desks are further away from his now. And because HL has started looking for an heir apparent in his second family. And so the brothers team up to go after a new prize. Together, they purchase 20 million ounces of hard silver and begin their search for more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. So Bunker and Herbert Hunt, our main characters in this psychodrama, are, to put it one way, struggling. To set the stage again, these brothers grew up fighting for the attention of their famous father, H.L. Hunt. He was a wildly successful oil magnate, a billionaire, an arch-conservative, and the richest man in the world. But Bunker and Herbert didn't seem to feel secure in their father's affection, or in his wealth, especially after they discovered that their father had sorted two other families while still married to their mother. Despite all this, Bunker's Libyan holdings made him the new richest man in the world which evaporated when Gaddafi nationalized his fields. Now, things are looking bleak for Bunker. Bleak by billionaire standards, at least. In addition to losing his holdings in Libya, Bunker and his brother Herbert still don't know how much of their father's empire they're going to inherit. After all, there are two other families in the running. But silver promises a solution to many of the brothers' problems. And so, the Hunts plunge headfirst into the strange world of precious metal speculation. And they begin a globe-trotting quest to fill their bank vaults. This is the second in our four-part series on Silver Thursday. This is episode two. All in the families. Good afternoon. Hi. Uh, we're here for an interview with uh, Dr. Jarecki. Come in. Thank you. Henry Jarecki is a billionaire and a man with unique insight into Bunker and Herbert Hunt.
1: I don't. Um, I don't know your name. Oh, I'm Bijan. Bijan, and you go with one name.
0: No, <laughs> I'm He's one of the most accomplished metal traders on the planet, and back in the 70s, was one of the Hunt's major trading partners. Last year, we visited him at his office in Manhattan. We spoke in the library, which had eight and a half foot high bookcases, and at least four shelves were entirely dedicated to volumes about money.
1: Uh, could you bring me one of the books? One of your books? Yes.
0: He gave us a copy of his autobiography. Yes. I'm uh, making a hardcover.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, you'll enjoy it. I mean, I, I haven't taken my life that seriously. I can give you a, a long story, or I could give you, you know, what happened on Silver Thursday. <laughs> I asked
0: for the longer story. Because silver trading in the 70s wasn't just another commodities market. It was a whole world unto itself. And there's no better guide to that world than Henry Jurecki. Jarecki is in his eighties now, but before he was a metals trader, he was a professor of psychiatry at Yale until he caught the silver bug.
1: When you practice psychiatry, and you believe, as I always have, in biological causes of psychiatric disorders, and you're not as fussed about discussions of mommy and daddy. And so the result is that you sit there And people are telling you stories of all kinds, but your mind wanders. And my mind wandered to metal markets.
0: So Jarecki pivots away from psychiatry, and he makes his first metal deals in the late 60s, buying and selling silver certificates from the U.S. Treasury. And he quickly seeks out more opportunities. He's still an amateur in the world of metal markets, but he soon buys himself a seat at the most exclusive table of all. (laughs) Jarecki partners with a British bank called Standard Chartered, and he attends the London Metal Exchange Dinner, which is a high-dollar event hosted every year in a grand hotel, with a different metal trading or manufacturing company taking up seemingly every room. It's the place to make deals. And Jarecki has a very big deal to make. He's just purchased two or three million Canadian five-cent pieces — nickels. The reason he's acquired around 100,000 Canadian dollars in five cent coins is because he's discovered that Canadian nickels are made entirely of, yes, you guessed it, nickel. Like silver, nickel has a ton of industrial applications, which means it's valuable beyond just being currency. Jarecki believes a strike at the International Nickel Company is about to send prices sky high. And he's in London to see if any of the traders in the grand hotel suites will buy his nickels for more than the five or so cents he paid for them. No one in any of these rooms knows Jarecki, but they're familiar with the guy from Standard Chartered he's with, a diminutive man named Sam Eric. Jarecki and Eric go from room to room, and everyone knows Eric.
1: Hey, Sam, how are you doing? What's up? What's new? Amusing guy, told great jokes. So everybody laughed, and then he reached into his pants pocket, take a five cent piece. Put it in his hand while nobody watched him, he says, "What do you think I got in my hand?" I say, "I don't know, Sam." <laughs> and opened his hand and said, nickel I got hundreds of millions of these. Oh wow. Then everybody gather around because that was the big thing of that moment in the middle markets. They'd start talking how much and where and so on, and then he would turn around, leave their suite and say, "Ah' You're not interested. We did this three or four times. (laughs) And I said, I don't know, are we just having fun, Sam? What are we doing? I I had a different goal. And uh, so uh, he said, no, no. He says, I don't know what the price of nickel is at this moment. These guys are all going to call me up the following day, and they're going to make me a bid for it. Then I'll, I'll have your nickel sold before noon. So we made some hundreds of thousands of dollars through this effort. And um, that was pretty good. To put that
0: in perspective, a hundred grand in the late 60s is the equivalent of about three quarters of a million dollars today. Jarecki is talking about some multiple of that. Not bad for one night in London. This is the insular world of metal trading that the Hunts went into and are going to append. It's a place where a man like Jarecki can make astounding profits by simple arbitrage. Buy low, sell high. After about a decade of trades, Jarecki is firmly entrenched in silver. It's around this time in the early 70s that Bunker and Herbert embark on their quest in earnest. They make their first major silver purchases in 1972 or 1973. But there's something different about the brothers than the other players in the silver market. First, the Hunts have a lot of money to play with. Second, they are extremely bullish on silver. They're taking a long position, which means they expect prices to go up and up and up. And this is because they found a pop finance book that said silver was undervalued. And finally, the Hunts have a particular interest in obtaining physical silver. They don't want banknotes saying they own X amount. They want metal in their vaults. So, one groovy early 70s day, Jarecki gets on a plane to meet the mysterious brothers face to face. Maybe they can do some deals together.
1: And uh, I got to Dallas, and they were, two of them were there to pick me up, just the two of them, not a big gang, and they were multi-billionaires thought to be among the richest people in the world. We lumbered into their old Chevrolet. They, they were very modest people. They drove around in an old jalopy. I sat in the back seat and I'm with my two billionaire chauffeurs in the front seat. And we drove out to a big spread in the countryside with a lot of land around it. And a modest sized shack in the middle of it. and started talking about different businesses that we could do. Bunker sort of trundled his way out of there, but I stayed with Herbert, who's an interesting, sharp business person. But after a couple of hours, we were looking at each other, what happened to Bunker? So we wandered around the shack, and there was Bunker, sleeping on one of the couches. I think I'd say
0: that this is when the brothers were off to the metaphorical races. Metaphorical because Bunker loved horses. I think it's also important to note again that Drekki is currently a billionaire and a former practicing Yale psychiatrist. He's a guy who knows far better than most what transacting these huge amounts of money does to your psyche. Because piles of cash and silver make people weird. I couldn't resist asking him to speculate on the deeper emotional motivations behind the brother's quest for silver.
1: It's unclear to me, even these years later, what drove them. It is relatively, understood that their father repeatedly said to his boys that they would never make it in business, especially to Bunker. And they had a great urge to prove him wrong. And that mattered to them.
0: And speaking of Popsy, well, in November 1974, Popsy dies. This is just over a year since Bunker lost his Libyan oil fields. It's been a tough run for the former richest man in the world. He can't prove his dad wrong anymore. And it only gets worse from here. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and It's operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6,000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's December 2nd, 1974. The day of H.L. Hunt's funeral at First Baptist, a megachurch spanning several blocks in downtown Dallas. H.L. Hunt lies in an open casket at the front of the house of worship with nearly 2,000 mourners in attendance. The organist plays God Bless America as the pastor leads H.L. Hunt's families, plural, onto the stage. Bunker and Herbert are there with their siblings from the first family, and they're joined by the mother and half-siblings from their father's second family. As for the third family, well, H.L. preferred not to acknowledge them in public. The pastor closes H.L.'s casket, and the families file off the stage to take their seats in the front pews. The service begins. Although Bunker and Herbert show unity with their half-siblings during the funeral, HL's last will and testament hangs over the proceedings like the judgment of God the Father himself. The will is filed the very next day. And HL's last wishes are a heavy blow to his first family. HL leaves the entirety of Hunt Oil, his flagship oil company, to the second family. And he also gives the second family his Dallas estate with the mansion modeled after Mount Vernon, the one where Bunker and Herbert played touch football against their half-siblings on the lawn. He names the only son of the second family as the estate's sole executor. And he puts in a clause that says, if any member of any of the families challenges his will in court, they'll be automatically disinherited. Bunker and Herbert get family trusts, but they don't inherit the flagship H.L. Hunt firms. Of course, Bunker and Herbert already have more money than their rivals in the other families ever will. But author Harry Hurt says the brothers took the will as a final insult from their father. One last claim that they didn't measure up to his expectations. But Bunker and Herbert still have silver to think about. And they set out on a quest for a new family to help them in their efforts. Let's fast forward four years because it took that long for the Hunts to find their new, silver-happy family. On October 1st, 1978, Bunker Hunt sits among the bidders at an auction for racehorses in Paris. In a scene reported by author Stephen Fay, the bidders watch as yearling horses parade in front of the crowd, and a screen reports bids in multiple currencies. Bunker and Herbert are still voraciously buying silver, and they've been buying much of it using a financial instrument called a margin where they only have to put up a portion of the total price of what they're buying in order to make a deal. There's an obvious benefit to margins. The Hunts can acquire more silver for less money up front. But there's also a risk, a risk that could prove to be a fatal flaw at the center of the Hunts' plan. If the price of silver drops, the banks are allowed to make what's called a margin call, which is a demand that the Hunts pay off the price gap between what they paid for the silver and what it's worth now. This could create a situation where the Hunts need the price of silver to keep going up because otherwise they won't have the cash to cover the margin calls, which would mean their whole silver plan crumbles. (laughs) So Bunker needs a very rich partner to get into the silver market. Because if another very wealthy player gets as obsessed with silver as he is and starts buying up the supply, prices are pretty much guaranteed to go up. Bunker has been seeking someone with deep pockets for years. He's already been turned down by the Shah of Iran. And he's made failed inquiries elsewhere among the ruling families of the Middle East. But it's at this horse auction in Paris that he finally makes his breakthrough. After the auction, Bunker meets two men who are representatives of Prince Abdullah bin Abdulaziz, a member of the Saudi royal family. Bunker makes his pitch on silver, saying that with the right partnership, he can control the silver market and give Prince Abdullah an astonishing return on his investment. Again, that's according to reporting by Stephen Fay. The Hunts have denied that they ever intended to manipulate the silver market, and the Saudis, for their part, denied that they ever even bought silver. But what's known is that not long after this meeting, a mysterious new company springs up in Bermuda. It's got an innocuous name, just a series of initials. I-M-I-C. But the company starts buying silver, and the global price just keeps climbing. On the next episode of Eclipsed, the Hunt brothers face off against a hated adversary. Big government. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Kenyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael, $50 an ounce, Kenyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Schaer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriotis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipse at campsidemedia.com. Or tweet at us at eclipsepod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm at Bijan Cakes. We also have a phone number. Leave us a message, pitch us a story, or tell us your nightmares. Give us a call at 949-490-2127. You might be featured on an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.